Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Welcome to this episode of Lung Cancer Voices uh, podcast. This is the fourth and final in a series where I'm uh, talking with Dr. Garth Nicholas about his magnum opus uh, <laughs> in November 2021 during Lung Cancer Awareness Month, where he he tweeted every day a series of tweets to highlight for us the most important uh, uh, research studies in, in really through the history of, of lung cancer and uh, how they've brought us from in his November 1st tweet, a fairly d- dismal outcomes from lung cancer th- through to 2022, where there is significant more hope and significant, uh, significantly better results we're seeing. So in, in the first um, episode, we talked about uh, you know why he did this and a little bit about uh, his involvement with Twitter, and then we talked about lung cancer screening. In the second episode, we talked about adjuvant studies uh, in lung cancer and uh, meta-analyses and some of the newer controversies around adjuvant therapy or debates and then in the last step uh, one the third episode we talked about advanced lung cancer and this journey that we've been on through waves of advances from chemotherapy to targeted therapies and immunotherapies and and today just to, to finish off we're going to talk about three studies which which are not linked in in a in a pattern that we've talked about before, but they're, they're linked in a sense of that we learn different things and we have different questions because of the way the trials were designed or because of the results of them. So to start with, we're going to go to a negative study. So th- this was November the 9th and a study called RTOG0617. And I remember when I moved to Ottawa ooh, 13 years ago, we were, we were taking part in that study yes. here in Ottawa. And uh, so, Garth, maybe you could explain what was the study, you know, who, who was in it, what was it, what was it asking, what, uh, and then why, why, did you, why did you put it in here, because it, because it turned out to not be sure. something that changed anything. Sure. So, the, so the, the study enrolled people who had uh, locally advanced lung cancer. This is something we haven't talked about too much in the previous podcast, but it's kind of an intermediate category of, of uh, lung cancers that are too advanced to be removed by surgery but they are not metastatic outside the chest. So they are, they are restricted to the lung and, and usually the lymph nodes in the middle of the chest. The standard treatment for people with this, uh, with, with this stage of lung cancer is, is some combination of chemo and radiation, which we deliver in the hopes of cure. This trial looked at two different things. It looked at first a, a standard dose of radiation versus a higher dose of radiation, uh, so 60 versus 74 gray. And it also looked at uh, whether or not to add uh, a drug called cetuximab to the chemotherapy. So patients were randomized actually twice in this study. They were randomized to either the higher or lower dose of radiation and were randomized to either cetuximab or no cetuximab in addition to the standard chemo. So there were, there were four arms. The cetuximab didn't add anything, and, and I don't think we need to talk about that. Something of, of maybe a surprise in this study that I think was a surprise at the time was that the group that got the higher dose of radiation didn't do any better. You know, I think it's, 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 a, it's a common thing to assume that uh, if some treatment is good, maybe more treatment is better. So the, the higher 
dose group not only did not do better, they, they in fact did slightly worse with the higher doses of radiation. So this was a negative trial. It failed to demonstrate uh, an improvement in survival like they hoped to. I thought it was important to include some negative trials in the, the 30 trials that I talked about over the course of the month. It, there's this tendency to talk about advances in, in treatment, you know, the, the advances uh, that we have seen. And when you talk about those exclusively, it maybe paints a picture of, you know, almost all research leading to important breakthroughs or, you know, everything that, everything that we try it, it turns to gold. In fact, most things that we try, most treatments that have been researched in lung cancer and other lung cancers really don't work. You know, it is the, it is the minority of things that actually improve things for our patients. And it's important to maybe show that once in a while. There, there are actually negative trials or, you know, things we try that don't work. This particular trial was negative in an informative kind of way because subsequent analysis uh, demonstrated that the increased uh, side effects or the increased toxicity in people who had the higher dose of radiation was mainly related to the dose of radiation given to the heart in the course of, of, uh, of radiating the middle of the chest. And it has caused radiation oncologists to uh, maybe alter their protocols and, and be more aware of, of the heart dose that they're giving in the course of treating lung cancer. Uh, so even this negative study, I think, has... Uh, in that sense, Im improved things to some degree for yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great, and I hadn't really appreciated that until until you tweeted this series that actually, you know, I just looked at this as being an, a negative study, and as as you say, that sometimes more isn't better. Yeah. But actually, there was a positive coming out of it for for radiotherapy delivery. Yeah, I guess I, I'm thinking as you were saying, you know, a lot of trials don't work. A bit like a uh, well, I grew up in England, so cricket is my sport, but baseball, uh, you know, if you're a batter most of the time you don't hit a home run and yeah. most most of the time you're yeah. out and uh sometimes you hit a home run and maybe there's some some analogy yeah. there with yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't watch basketball i only ever see highlights and so i just assume it's one slam dunk after another <laughs> whenever i've sat down to watch a game i've been quite disappointed yeah. <laughs> there you go uh we have a colleague in uh, in oshawa dr jeff rothenstein he would love this sports chat uh, for his, uh, <laughs> his presentations um right so negative studies and 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 learning sort of unintended consequences i guess sure. would be a good learning point from that and I think the other take home from the number of negative studies is that, you know, you will often have people come to us in, in, in the clinic who want to talk about treatments that have maybe not been researched or are not as well established, they, their vitamins or their alternative supplements or so on. And, and you know, I, I, think I, I think I always approach those with the idea, well, you, you know, most of the things that we research actually don't help. It, most likely, most of the things that we have not researched also do not help. You know, you, I, I think it's, it, it, it helps you to start with that position of skepticism when, when evaluating the potential of, of something being a new treatment. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so you brought that attitude of skepticism to uh, November 28th when you talked about a study uh, of, of a, a, a pill called crizotinib, which we've, which we visited before in a previous podcast sure. for alkaline cancer. But this was in a, a different type of lung cancer called ROS1. Yeah. And, well, uh, maybe may, maybe you could t tell us firstly about about ROS1, what's ROS1 sure. and crizotinib, and then why you picked this study and what, what's your, I don't know if concerns maybe too yeah. strong a word, but what, what's your I, I think Yeah, I, th I think the purpose of, of those tweets was just to illustrate some of the limitations of single-arm studies as compared to randomized studies. I, I think I said in a one or two episodes ago that uh, that if I wanted people to take home any one thing from reading these tweets, it's the importance of randomization and, and what a key tool that is in demonstrating the effectiveness of of, uh, of treatments. So so this was a, 
honestly a bit of a rant more than a summary of uh, of, of trials because I, I talked about uh, three trials in ROS1 mutated lung cancer. So ROS1 mutated lung cancer is uh, is an adenocarcinoma uh, which is driven by a, a a translocation of the specific gene ROS1. In some ways, uh, similar to like an ALK positive lung cancer, although less common, uh, maybe about a third as common as lung as ALK okay. uh, is. And so, it's and, a third as common means that. Out of a hundred lung cancer patients, maybe one, maybe one would, would yeah. have ROS one. Yeah. yeah, enriched for people who are a little bit younger, enriched for people who have not been smokers. Okay. Right, those are the sort of demographic characteristics. Okay. The uh, and and I actually sort of quickly showed results of of three single arm studies in ROS one positive lung cancer. Uh, one of a drug called uh, crizotinib, one of another TKI called lorlatinib, uh, another of a third TKI called intrectinib. All of those have been studied in single arm studies where where they simply treat a number of people and describe what happened to them. And although that can be valuable information, you know, what we are looking for in the clinic is is some means to choose between these or to decide whether any one of them is better than the other, or indeed whether any one of them is better than just the standard chemotherapy that we've had available for years. You really you you struggle in vain to find some way of 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 grounding these studies in a way that you can compare between them meaningfully and you probably cannot they all have slightly different enrollment criteria so they enroll slightly different types of patients people who had had different amounts of pretreatment people who were maybe sicker or less sick on one one study versus the other so any slight differences between the studies it could just as easily be related to the patient population as to the drugs in a randomized study, you don't have that problem, right? There are equal numbers of more sick and less sick people on each arms. There are equal numbers of older and younger people on each arm. And and the only difference between them is is the drugs, and, and you can compare more easily. So so I'm going to play devil's advocate here sure. with, with with two two questions. So firstly, I think in some of the tweets there, you showed what, what are called waterfall plots. Yes. And a waterfall plot is, uh, is, a, is a graph with a with a bar for every patient who gets the drug and if the bar goes above the baseline it's because the cancer's growing and if it goes below the baseline it's because it's shrinking sure and the degree with which it goes up or down is the degree with which the cancer is yep. growing or shrinking and y what you showed with these ROS1 studies is that almost completely not 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 100% but very high percentage if you get the drug the cancer shrinks so being devil's advocate, if I look at that and say, and then I see a patient in my clinic with a ROS1 lung cancer, why would I want, why would I want a randomized study when I can look at that graph and say, and say to the patient that your cancer will almost certainly shrink if I give you this pill? Sure. I, I don't think I, I don't think it's the the purpose of, of of my discussion or of this post to suggest that these drugs don't work. I mean, the the drugs no. clearly do work to shrink people's cancers, but that's. I mean, really, that's only the first step, isn't it? A waterfall plot doesn't give you any sense of duration of response, right? right? Or how, how long does that cancer remain shrunk afterwards? Um, so, so although we know all of these drugs have some activity, we really can't know with certainty that any one of them is preferred over the others. And I think, again, the, there's, this, there's a, a, a bias to kind of want to take uh, oral therapies, TKIs, which I completely understand. But, you know, 
there there is certainly the possibility that some of the TKIs we have now are, are not much better than the existing chemotherapies or, or maybe not as good as the existing chemotherapies. Uh, you never know that if you don't compare. Okay. Okay, so then my second devil's advocate challenge to yep. you if you if you choose to accept it is uh, we, we just mentioned there that ROS1 is maybe 1% of lung yes. cancers. And uh, just in this last year, well, you and I, I know, have, have, have started treating a one or two people with a, 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 a cancer called NTRK or NTRAC, yep. which is in the lung cancer population is 0.2%. Like it's extremely yep. rare. Yes. So if you wanted to do a randomized study of the pill versus chemotherapy, for example, yep. in a condition that is rare like that, and you already know from those waterfall plots that it's, you know, it can work, comments about duration accepted it would take years and years and years and years to do that study because it's so rare to get enough people in the right places where the study is being done to to answer that question and some might say so long that that would be either unethical or not feasible um what do you say to that yeah i'm 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 not sure about unethical. I'm, I'm sympathetic to the not feasible argument. Like, like I agree, there are probably some conditions that are that are rare enough that we will never get big, properly done, randomized trials. So the N-Track example that you give, I, I suspect, is probably one of them. But you know, even Ross one, we, we talked about it being being roughly a third as common as ALK positive lung cancers. We did randomized trials of ALK. You know the uh, the the randomized trial of uh, of crizotinib versus chemotherapy in ALK was done at a time when most hospitals in North America were not even testing for ALK. You know, like it was it was so new at the time, uh, and yet the randomized trials got done. I think that we are. <clears throat> I think that within an increasing uh, the increasing awareness of the importance of uh, of doing this molecular testing in newly diagnosed lung cancers, these patients are clearly out there. I think I think what would actually be most helpful would be if there was a clinical trial design that that made trials simple enough and straightforward enough for centers to participate in that we could bring in some of the smaller the smaller hospitals smaller centers to participate right like right now trials are mainly done in large large centers there needs to be the opportunity for you know smaller centers who only have two or three or four of these patients to still participate in studies because they're out there okay okay so finally we're going to talk about a study, and I, th- I think maybe two thirds of the way through the month, you sent me an email and a couple of other people saying, yeah. you know, you've you've got a couple of days left that you haven't <laughs> yet filled, and I think I'd, I'd suggested this study, and then I think you told me you'd already picked it, yeah. uh, that this, and uh, which I was happy about because it's one of my favorite studies. I I just know this as the Temel study. Judith yes. Temel, who was the the author, it may have had another name. Yeah, I don't know what it is if it has. Yeah. So this is not about drugs. Um, so we're no. we're going off off topic a little bit. But the Temel study really important. Um, wh- what's this? So uh, this is a study of an intervention. I guess this is a study about uh, palliative care. Okay. So many people have the sense that palliative care is uh, is care that people receive at end of life or, or care of imminently dying people. And although that is one aspect of palliative care, uh, palliative care does a lot more than that. Palliative care doctors are experts at symptom control. Uh, <clears throat> palliative care docs uh, help people with uh, sort of 
advanced planning and thinking about what their goals are and, and, and that kind of thing. And what this study looked at was randomizing people with advanced lung cancer to either be referred uh, to see a palliative care physician very soon after their diagnosis, I think within 12 weeks of diagnosis, or to receive a palliative care referral in the standard way, kind of at the discretion of the oncologist if they thought it was appropriate, okay? And the, the primary outcome of the study, so the, the thing the study was designed to look at, was a, a quality of life measure, uh, which, is, which was abstracted from sort of some questionnaires of patients' functional status and symptoms and so on at, at a time point, I, th I think about three months after diagnosis. And the uh, less provocative finding is that people who, uh, who were referred to palliative care early had, uh, had higher scores of, of sort of quality of life and symptom control and so on uh, than people who were not necessarily referred to palliative which care. Make, which makes sense. Which makes You're sense. You're asking right? somebody with an expertise in symptom yep. control and yep. they do Absolutely. their job. Yeah. Yep. There were some other findings that were, I guess, not the primary endpoint, but are kind of provocative, okay? So people who were initially refer, referred early to a palliative care physician were less likely to receive aggressive care at end of life, and that was defined as they were less likely to have received chemo within 14 days of death, uh, and they were not as likely to be admitted to a hospice or a facility for end-of-life care uh, very, very late, like within three or four days of dying, something like that. So, so patients seem to have uh, made more proactive sort of plans for end-of-life care and, and, and perhaps received uh, end-of-life care more in keeping with, uh, with their wishes. And then the most provocative thing is that despite the fact that people in the early palliative care group ultimately received less chemo and less treatment towards the end of life, they actually lived longer. So there was a, there was a survival advantage in people who, who uh, were referred early to palliative care physicians uh, compared to those who were not. It's, it's a striking finding. People have debated whether it's real, whether it's a statistical fluke. Uh, I think it's probably real. I think, you know, many of us who, who reflect on, on treatment of people with cancer sort of reflect on this idea that some, you know, it can be hard to stop treatments. It can be hard to say no. And, and there are lots of, uh, there are lots of things that, uh, that encourage both physicians and patients to carry on with treatments, uh, perhaps longer than treatments are likely to be useful or, or longer than we ought. And at some point, as, as end of life approaches, do those treatments actually, actually hasten end of life rather than, than putting it off? Yeah. Right. So, uh, so it's interesting. So I, took all of those from from that uh, study too and I guess the other thing that I I wonder about is um, you know probably many places don't have the resources available or the number of palliative care physicians available for palliative care doctors to be seeing all lung cancer patients sure. given there's 30,000 lung cancers diagnosed in Canada yep. each year those resources don't exist for, for many but it can then help it helps me I think as an oncologist to have a, a sort of palliative care mindset as a silo, if you like, in my brain. I've got sure. the, the sort of chemo or immunotherapy treatment, but I'm also, this helps me be more aware of, of having those discussions around advanced care planning yeah. or, or, or symptom control. Yeah, I think so too. I think, although in, in this study, a lot of that was, well, maybe I'll put that another way. There's, there's, there's a lot of debate as to what is the 
what is the sort of special ingredient that palliative care physicians are, are, are adding in this study? Like, is it the end of care discussion? Is it the, the attention to symptom control? What is the sort of special sauce here that brings it all together? And how much of that can, can you and I do as oncologists as well? I, we can probably all do more than we, more than we do, yeah. Great. So that brings us to the end of this series of uh, four podcasts looking at these very uh, landmark research studies in, in lung cancer that Dr. Nicholas identified through Lung Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, we've, we haven't talked about all of them, so I would encourage you to go and, and have a look. Uh, if, you, if you are on Twitter, his Twitter handle is at GarethNicholas1. And uh, all through November 2021, he, he tweeted... Garth, would, as you sort of reflect on that um, uh, Herculean task, what are your final thoughts? Did you, do you think that you're you're a better doctor from having done it, mm -hmm. or uh, or it's made you see some of this in a, in a new light, or what? Or is it just, you know, oh my I gosh, it's December the first. Give me a glass of wine and uh, no, no, no. let me go to sleep. Yeah, I think it, uh, you know. I think I had never the, the 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 trials as I described them are in roughly chronological order, although they do jump around a bit to to pick up on certain themes. I don't know that I had ever sort of read through them in that way before, you know. So that was a you know, although obviously I knew all of these studies, that was maybe a different way of having looked at them and thought about them, and and it sort of re-emphasized to me the kind of iterative way that what you learn from the one it's sort of sort of uh, leads to the next one so so i'd say that was that was maybe a, a new way of looking at it that i got got from this uh, got from this and i think the other thing that was valuable to me honestly was some of these are so kind of bedrock in our practice you know it it, it had probably been 10 years or more since i'd actually read them you know they they are they are just they they form the you know kind of the water that we swim in every day and you sort of forget about them but to to go back and read some of the old studies was uh, uh, a good reminder of what they were and and in some cases what they weren't yeah. well great well thank you for taking that on and thanks for spending the time with me to go through this on the, on the podcast you have a lot of followers on on uh, on twitter and and for those listening if there's anything here that has resonated with you if you're a lung cancer patient and uh, you think something's been particularly relevant or you've learned something, please do take that to your, your healthcare team if you've got questions about that. And otherwise, come back for the next episode of Lung Cancer Voices. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore can, and on Instagram at Lung Cancer Canada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.